Welcome to Spotlight, a Bournemouth University series exploring the people and stories behind the research. On today's episode, we chat to Professor Michael Silk, who aims to give a voice to communities marginalised by sporting mega-events. Think of the Olympics or a World Cup, and you'll probably imagine the screaming fans, incredible sporting displays and amazing ceremonial spectacles. But what about the things that the cameras don't focus on? The people and images a country might not want you to see. From being held at gunpoint in Kuala Lumpur to sharing the stories of sex workers at the Rio Olympics and exploring coverage of Paralympic Games, Professor Michael Silk has dedicated his career to giving a voice to those who are often marginalised under the international spotlight of sporting mega-events. I spoke to Mike to find out more. Sports mega-events are the, the bigger ticket events, so they could be, for example, the Football World Cup, the uh, Rugby World Cup, the Olympics, the Paralympics, uh, and probably to a degree the Commonwealth Games as well. So they're the top tier of um, sporting competition which require a whole structure uh, to be put in place for them to take place. So they're not things like the FA Cup final, it's not um, a regular Premier League match, it's an actual event which requires all, all types of uh, legal structures, political structures, uh, developments, regeneration and, and so on. And why is that something that interested you then? Why was that something you wanted to explore further? Sport mega events are really interesting mostly because most people look at them and are just fascinated by the spectacle. All they see is the sporting event and that's not surprising because the television coverage of these events is, is fantastic. It's so slick, you get access to to everything and uh, you you know it's plastered all over the television screens but you never actually see what's going on beneath the surface uh, what is happening to various populations various parts of the of the citizenry um, you never really understand what's happened before the event has taken place in terms of the efforts and and the costs which have gone into making a an event happen um, and for for a country to be able to put itself to be able to represent and show itself off in a particular way so if you take Brazil for example in in um, 2014 and 2016 Rio um, for the Olympics and the World Cup respectively Rio had a, a mantra to try and attract tourists and attract um, therefore attract greater economies so the parts of Rio which were shown off through the television coverage for example were the types of things you would expect you, Copacabana Beach, Ipanema Beach um, so the BBC studios were on Copacabana Beach and, 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 and so on but what you didn't see and this is where my research is focused on is, is really on what you don't see um, what you didn't see in Rio and in many other examples is of the types of the types of processes and, and policies which are going on which help to make that event what it is but are not the types of things which the camera would want to uh, focus on and nor would the host city or the host country want that to be seen. So for example the um, in Rio the, the raising of the purveyors, the um, movement of sex workers, the um, military occupation going on in the city, um, before and after after the games, those types of things which attempted to control which people are seen and which parts of the city are seen and therefore which ones are deemed to be uh, un- unseeable by the rest of the watching world. 
And how do you get into that? They must be quite difficult groups to access and gain trust and then kind of do your research around, but how do you even begin to start a process like that? That's a great question. Um, with uh, our work in Rio, we, we concentrated particularly on sex workers, the most marginalised group uh, probably in, in Rio. Um, and to put that into context, sex work is, is a legal occupation in Brazil. It's not so much as any other citizen may have what's called the right to the city. Um, so to, to access a group such as that and to gain trust and to work with them, and they produce some great work for us in terms of um, a photo exhibition uh, which sort of gave an indication of everyday lives and the struggles they face in everyday lives, uh, is difficult. So you have to work with local organisations local charities, local advocacy group, local group, sorry, local activists, um, sex worker support groups, as well as other academics who have worked with those populations before so that we have legitimacy and trust. So, for example, in Rio, we worked with the Observatory of Prostitution, um, a charity called Davida, which is a sex worker support charity, um, and other academics who've worked with, with uh, sex workers and we worked with them so that we could gain access, gain trust. And it's a long process. We had researchers in the field in Rio for two years um, gaining trust and access and rapport before we could really collect any you know, meaningful data. And what sort of things did they tell you then? Because there must be opportunities as well as challenges, because obviously there's going to be a huge influx of people coming into the country that are potential clients, I suppose, or, or could positively benefit those communities as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, what, the main thing which we found in Rio was, was sort of debunking some of the myths around sex work um, and finding out that, most importantly, the people who were engaged in these occupations were, you know, they would talk, and these are, not, these are not my words, these are their words, but they would have real, we have real lives, we are real people, we are human beings who deserve to be treated in particular ways, and as in the same way as any, anyone else. What we didn't manage to do was debunk a number of myths that relate to sport mega events, so the assumption, and if you read the popular press in the UK and beyond, the assumption is that sport mega events uh, would, would mean that uh, there'd be an influx of sex workers ready to service a larger clientele. The reality is that sex work dipped uh, and there was very little in terms of new sex workers arriving. What actually happened was that sex workers were moved out of the communities in which they normally worked in and what that meant was they lost a lot of support, so social ties, medical ties, healthcare ties, personal support, which meant that they became more vulnerable um, to all types of violence, gender-based violence, as well as police brutality. So is that a bit of a, a misconception then, that when a mega event comes to a country, London 2012 for example, we were all told it would be a brilliant kind of opportunity for London and for the country and everybody would benefit, but actually there are still those groups who, as you say, are kind of moved on and, and disrupted um, and don't see those benefits? Yes, I mean sports mega events are really interesting because you can't help but to be drawn in by them. Everyone likes to watch the Olympics and when I talk with my students... And they say, oh, you don't like sport? I do, I'm the biggest fan. <laughs> we are the biggest fans, but we just have a more nuanced understanding of it. And so I think you, can, you can't help but being drawn in. And of course, the country does benefit from being like, on the world stage for a short period of time. And there's this feel-good factor um, for a short period of time. Again, they call it 90-minute nationalism. So for 90 minutes of a football match, everyone feels English, even though you probably couldn't describe what that meant. So everyone feels that connectedness even if it's for a temporary uh, period of time but beyond that sort of nationalistic moment that brief temporary nationalistic moment mega events also draw in 
uh, or, or, a, or a subject to a whole variety of, of processes and policies which impact upon the experience of that mega event and the, uh, for the wider population. So, for example, in London 2012, there were all types of questions about the relevance of the Games beyond London or beyond a particular pocket of London. There were all types of issues surrounding movement of the homeless. So large numbers of homeless people were um, uh, evacuated from London and placed into other pockets around the world. So different councils across the country were able to bid for London's homeless, which meant that many of the strategies of survival for homeless people, which they have built up over time in their their localities, were taken away. And and then that leads to all types of other problems around criminality, deviance, drug use and and so on. Um, There were also large parts of East London which were were, um, demolished and then regenerated and the questions which surround that often refer to who are they regenerated for, and it's more often the, the case, more more often the case than it's not for the, for the communities who were there previously. So, for example, in in London, the Clay's Lane housing estate was uh, was the site where the Olympic uh, Park was built. That Clay's Lane housing estate was one of the most famous cooperatives, housing cooperatives, uh, in the country, um, which was built for London's workers who couldn't afford to live in London. Um, but then that was demolished and moved on. And so now if you look at the housing portfolio in and around Olympic Park, it's mostly high-end. There was prom- there were always promises of more social housing, but they become de- more diminished. In fact, there's different entrance into the housing depending upon if you're in social housing or if, you, if you're an owner. So there's this whole marked sort of distinction between who belongs and who does not to sort of newly regenerated areas. Uh, so but, but houses are often... Or the, the condos and apartments, which are on the Olympic Park at the moment, many are in, pro- in foreign ownership and are not lived in. So there's like, there's a loss again of a sense of community, um, and of course they're in foreign ownership and not lived in because they accumulate money uh, every year. But the housing prices have continued to rise, although obviously they bottomed out this year. And how did this become something that you were interested? Was there something that prompted you to think more kind of deeply and more in a more nuanced way about some of these mega events? I, I suppose. When, when I was an undergraduate student, I got the opportunity to um, do a placement and my dissertation with Sky Sports, who were, who were just starting out, which makes me sound really old. Um, <laughs> so I really looked at the way in which they manufactured a sporting event. And then, so then through my master's, um, when I was in Canada, uh, I did the same with a television company called TSN, the Sports Network, who are owned by ESPN in, in the US and in Canada. And I started again to look at the way in which um, Nation was was manufactured through sports and through the sport media. And so that led me to Kuala Lumpur in um, Malaysia for my PhD, where I started to look at, well, I was actually employed by the host broadcaster at the 1998 Commonwealth Games. And while we were there, we started to go on field trips to gather electronic news, so it's called electronic news gathering. So we started to go on to, into the city, and we started to see the um, demonstrations which were taking place around the uh, hosting of the event. And effectively, the hosting of the event was being used to legitimise uh, the, the, the then Prime Minister matter here Mohammed's dictatorship and people who disagreed with his economic policy became um, subject to all types of um, criminal charges 
So, for example, his deputy prime minister, Ibrahim Anwar, was um, splashed across all the front pages and taken out of office and put into prison because of alleged sodomy with some of his aides. Um, and as a result of that, there was all these demonstrations. So I was part of a news crew which was gathering, gathering these, these images of these demonstrations. We went and took those back to the host broadcast centre and I was working, um, I was working on, a, on a broadcast with Television New Zealand. So we took these images of these, these riots which were going on in um, Independent Square in, in Kuala Lumpur and we were broadcasting them back to Auckland in New Zealand for inclusion on the nightly news broadcast. And then the host broadcast centre was, was hosted in the Ministry of Information. So literally two minutes into broadcasting the footage, we were raided by armed um, police who were acting as security and held at gunpoint. Um, what, and they ordered us to stop broadcasting the tape, which is all about protecting the image that they wanted of Malaysia, which was going around the world. They didn't want to see this other, people to see this other image. They wanted to see the, the bright, um, economically prosperous, um, advanced and progressive Malaysia, which was the image they were trying to, trying to promote through the hosting of the Commonwealth Games. So this was directly in opposition to that. So we were held at gunpoint and... Um, they demanded that we stop broadcasting the tape, which I agreed with when I was being held at gunpoint. Yet the executive producer held firm and said, "You know, don't mm. don't send that tape." Well, that's a bit more ambiguous. Um, <laughs> but um, as a result of that, I think that's probably what really made me want to understand more about you know what we don't see, what we're made to see, and what we what we what is it's decided is not what we should be watching. And understanding, and of course, you know, television is a, is a plays a huge role in influencing societal attitudes and, and um, influencing societal change. And so, you know, to know how much of it is manufactured in a particular way, so that we can only take away certain meanings, I think, is really what pushed me to try and find out more uh, through my future research. So, do you feel that through your research, you're giving these people a voice and a platform that they might not get through mainstream media? Then, certainly. Incorporating marginalised voices is a, is a huge part of, of what we do. Um, so, for the, the, the work we've just done in Rio in relation to in relation to sex work is the first study of its kind, which has actually used the, um, the voices and the images provided by sex workers to tell their story, to give them a different story than the sort of preferred narrative which comes through the media. As well as that, it's about working with powerful organisations such as media organisations to try and influence um, and change their practice. So in our work on the Paralympics, we've been looking at not only how the Paralympics are broadcast and put together, uh, but we've also been doing uh, detailed work on the actual content as it goes to air to understand, for example, the types of disabilities shown, the gender breakdown in in terms of um, how many uh, events with males, how many events with females, the types of disability so you know, how many uh, events with wheelchairs, how many events with sort of carbon fibre prosthetics, but also how many events are shown with people with um, some cognitive disabilities such as, or disabilities such as cerebral palsy. Um, and we're also looking as, at how the audience understands the way in which the broadcasts have been put together. So we've done focus groups up and down the country with the general public, as well as 
uh, worked with UK Sport to do a national, nationally representative survey to understand societal attitudes towards disability in the Paralympics and some of the media coverage. So collectively, if we can get a large evidence base like that, and if there start to be commonalities in that evidence base, which, which there are, then we can take that back to the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, the IPC, Paralympics GB, we can take it back to the media organisations, Channel 4, we plan to go to Tokyo shortly to meet NHK, who are producing Tokyo 2020 Paralympics, and give them a flavour of both people, the general public's perceptions and attitudes towards their coverage, and give them a deeper understanding of what they're focusing on. They never have time to reflect on what they do. Media organisations tend to have institutionalised practices which they apply no matter what, and so that they, they never really take the time or have the time to be able to say, oh, we're focusing too much on the male athlete or too much on a female athlete or too much on people with disabilities. They, they, they have other rationales which are driving their production. So hopefully we can provide some type of reality checks and also maybe some blueprints as well for um, acceptable production, which is going to enhance the, the contribution that can be made towards progressive social change. So do you think coverage of things like the Paralympics can make a difference in people's perceptions and understanding of disabilities and what people with disabilities can do? Yes, although it's a very fine line to tread. So, for, for example, the visibility that Channel 4 have created for athletes with disabilities is, you know, is immense. So they, they, they hugely, hugely advanced the amount of coverage which was uh, of, the, of the Paralympics than when it was previously held by the previous rights holder. They've invested huge amounts of money into promoting the uh, event and they've done a lot of work behind the scenes as well, for example, in ensuring that the staff who produce the events, as well as the staff who are on screen, so they're, they're, um, their stars, um, their presenters, um, represent um, a range of disabilities. They also did a lot of work to ensure, for example, that... Um, Advertisers who wanted to advertise in Channel Four uh, during the Paralympics would have um, disability within the adverts, and so we, all of a sudden you had a hundred adverts on television which would not have been on there before, which centred and focused around disability. And they've also done a lot to push a sort of social agenda as well, with respect to programmes like the Last Leg. Um, and the Channel and the Paralympics is not in a vacuum, um, so there's a lot of other disability programming that they do. Um, for example, Pimp My Limb, um, The Undateables, and, yeah. and so on, which can you know, heighten the visibility of disability. We call it the hyper-visibility of disability in our research, um, even if sometimes it's only for a temporary period of time. That's the positive. The negative is it does depend on how those disabilities are treated within television coverage, whether they're mocked and, and um, which is not not generally, I don't think what the broadcaster sets out to do. But if you take a program like the Undateables, for example, then you know, is it something exotic and something you know different to be laughed at? Is that how it's interpreted by the audience, or is it something which is really pushing the boundaries of what we as an audience are acceptable and comfortable with? Um, but for the Paralympics specifically, the difficulty and the debate emerges around which types of disability gain prominence during the coverage and how closely those relate to an able-bodied norm. So for example, during the Paralympic coverage, the majority of coverage um, of backstories, of, um, of, of 
event coverage, uh, interviews after events and so on, would be based around athletes who have certain forms of impairment. And they tend to be those which are sort of the more celebrated forms of impairment. So, for example, um, a military veteran who was injured during, during conflict and is now um, bouncing back to uh, using a prosthetic limb. So that technology is what's the, the attraction and the normalisation, if you like, of, of, of technology such as prosthetics really allows for um, compelling storylines, compelling narratives, but also something that the audience, the presumed audience, because we're making an assumption that we, the audience is monolithic, which it isn't, but the presumed audience is one which... Um, can understand. There would be far less, for example, emphasis on athletes with cerebral palsy. Um, and this, this relates to something which is called the, the um, hierarchies of disability, which tends to relate to the comfortableness of the general public with seeing certain forms of disability. So we, we as a society, I'm speaking in generic terms, are far more comfortable with seeing someone with a prosthetic limb, which is augmenting a quote-unquote normal body, than we are with seeing forms of impairment which, which are more difficult for us to understand and relate to. And that, to me, is probably the key tension which, which underpins the Paralympic coverage at the moment. For Channel 4 to really push the boundaries and to produce edgy innovative and entertaining content that is able to straddle the tension between showing and reporting on and representing a whole plethora, a whole range of different forms of disabilities. I think that's the key challenge moving forward as Channel 4 tried to normalise disability in society. They've gone, they, they would argue they're on a journey and they can't do that straight away, but they certainly have made inroads with respect to understanding of certain forms of disability. The next challenge for Channel 4 is for them to be able to understand sort of what are deemed to be less palatable and acceptable forms of disability um, so that they can really push that sort of barrier and create even more sort of progressive change. And so looking ahead then to the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, what sort of issues do you foresee arising there and, and are you planning any work around that? The advances in Paralympic coverage, which we've been talking about, are very much limited to the UK. Channel 4 is having a huge international influence, um, so they're meeting with uh, their colleagues in Canada, in the US, uh, in, in Japan. In the US, for example, the Paralympics are not live on television. There's around about one hour of coverage every night of, of highlights. Um, so, you know, Channel 4, the UK generally, are seen to be trailblazers in, in uh, Paralympic coverage. And of, other national broadcasters are looking up and taking interest. So Channel 4 are slowly talking to those broadcasters and trying to influence how they do things. So whenever, so when the event is in a different country, you are sort of beholden to what the host broadcaster will be able to show. Now the host broadcaster for all Olympics and Paralympics is a Spanish company called OBS, the Olympic Broadcasting Services, who will be doing things uh, to a standard format. Channel 4 will have the opportunity then to augment and create content which will, which will supplement what the host broadcaster provides. But the host broadcaster will not be, able, will not be providing live feeds from every event. They'll focus on track and field, tennis and swimming, because those are the, mo- the sports which are 
most likely to gather to garner an audience because they're most like the Olympic sports. So sports which involve um, some of the more disabled disabled, such as boccia, for example, will, will very rarely get a live feed and you'll very rarely hear about the English or the Great British medal um, which is related to that. So there's a lot of challenges um, which relate not just to Channel 4 but to broadcasters around the world and to host broadcasters as well. The budget for host broadcasting of the Paralympics is simply uh, a, a, a very small percentage of, of, of that which broadcasts Olympics. So there's less cameras, less feeds going into a host broadcast centre and thereby the coverage centres on those sports which they perceive will gather the largest audience, which does then tend to replicate some of the issues that we spoke to earlier around the, the hierarchies of disability. Mm. And more generally with Tokyo as well, are there different kind of cultural uh, sensitivities to take into account in different groups that might end up being marginalised because of the image that Japan wants to portray? I, I think Japan, this, for this Olympics, is very much about promoting an image of national togetherness so Japan has had a hard time recently with earthquakes and um, disasters at nuclear uh, sites. And so the, the image they want to portray through Tokyo 2020 will be one of national togetherness, uh, which is very different from the image they portrayed in 1964, I believe, um, when they produced one of uh, they produced an image of economic advancement and manufacturing as they wanted to highlight themselves as the sort of centre of manufacturing. So this image is going to be different. Now, whenever you try and create a shared national identity, there's always problems because quite often, so to go back to what we were talking about in Malaysia, that was one of the, one of the aims of the Malaysian uh, government through the Commonwealth Games was to create a, a shared ethnic and cultural heritage and belonging, which simply doesn't exist in a multicultural society and certainly doesn't exist in, a, uh, in, in Malaysia at that time or indeed in the present day. So whenever you present a shared, a shared journey, a shared pathway, a shared belonging, a shared heritage, then you're going to marginalise certain groups and promote preferred sort of versions of the, the sort of the national citizenry. So, with the eyes of the world on Tokyo ahead of the 2020 Olympic Games, perhaps we should all look a little more closely at what we see and what we don't. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Spotlight and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud to hear more from Bournemouth University.